Uh, well, good morning. Uh, we, uh, if you remember, are uh, doing this series uh, in Luke's Gospel, uh, Luke's account of the life of Jesus while he was here on earth. Uh, and between now and Easter, what we're doing is homing in on what happened in the days leading up to Jesus' death. And what we're going to be looking at this morning uh, is actually the eve or the night before he dies. If you want to follow along, we're going to be in Luke chapter 22. Uh, this is the famous passage where Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane shortly before he's arrested, tried, and then crucified. Perhaps like none other, this passage we're going to be grappling with today reveals to us what the cross really meant to Jesus. And as we eavesdrop on his impassioned praying, it's like we get a glimpse into his mind, what he was thinking, what he was feeling, and how he viewed everything that was about to happen for him. I'm going to pick up the story in verse 39, Luke 22, verse 39. Then, accompanied by the disciples, Jesus left the upstairs room and went as usual to the Mount of Olives. There he told them, pray that you will not give in to temptation. He walked away about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. And an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. He prayed more fervently, and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. At last, he stood up again and returned to the disciples, only to find them asleep, exhausted from grief. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Please, get up and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. Before we get into this, I want us to pray right now. No sleeping while we do so. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we kind of confronted in this passage with some deep things. We are confronted with some powerful, powerful truths. I want to pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would open our eyes to the reality of what the cross meant for you. As we're perhaps familiar with these verses, we could just gloss over them. I want to pray that they would hit us with fresh power, with fresh revelation today. Pray that you would touch our minds, you would touch our hearts, you would even touch our emotions. As we walk slowly through this passage, Lord Jesus, as you prayed for your Father's will to be done, so we pray together for your will to be done as we grapple with this passage. Whatever you want to do in our lives, however you want to challenge us, confront us, change us, encourage us, strengthen us, Please would you do that? We're open to you. Amen. Well, you'll be uh, relieved to hear. I uh, want to try and keep it really very simple this morning. Uh, haven't got loads of points, just a couple of points. I want us to look at what we can learn here, first of all, about what the cross really meant for Jesus. Uh, and then secondly, very quickly at the end, uh, I want to tie it up by looking at what the cross therefore means for us. First of all, then, what did the cross mean for Jesus. Now, don't know what you think, but in my mind, one of the hardest things to grasp about Jesus is the fact that when he came to earth, he was at one and the same time both fully God, but also fully man. In literally 
dozens of explicit verses throughout the New Testament, the writers affirm time and time and time again the full and absolute deity or godness of Jesus. So, for example, in Colossians 1 verse 19, describes how in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Later on in Colossians, in chapter 2 verse 9, Paul writes that in him, again, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity or godness dwells, lives bodily. As Matthew puts it in one, chapter 1 verse 23, his name, Jesus' name, is rightly called Emmanuel, which if you remember means God with us. We must never forget Jesus was and is fully God. However, at one and the same time, Jesus was also fully human. He was born just as all human babies are born. He grew through childhood to adulthood, just as other children grow up. He experienced what it was to be weary and hungry and thirsty and physically weak. He had a human mind that, uh, amazingly, according to Luke chapter 2, verse 52, over time increased in wisdom. In other words, Jesus had to go through a learning process just as all children do. He learned how to eat. He learned how to talk. He learned how to read and write and how to be obedient to his parents. In fact, Jesus was so incredibly human that according to Matthew chapter 13, those who knew him best, the neighbors he had grown up alongside, he had lived with and worked with for the best part of 30 years, they saw him as no more than an ordinary man. They refused to believe in him and follow him. However, although the New Testament clearly states that Jesus was fully human, just as we are, it also affirms that Jesus was different in one vitally, vitally important respect. He was without sin. Never once during his whole lifetime did Jesus do anything wrong. He was fully God, was fully man, yet was without sin. Now, why am I saying all of this? It's because here in the Garden of Gethsemane, the tension, the conflict, if you like, the paradox of the divinity, the godness, and the humanity of Jesus, they all rise up to the surface in an incredibly powerful way. Now, please, let's not be casual about this. Let's not switch off at this point. What we observe here in this passage is foreign to any previous description of Jesus in Luke's account of his life. In no uncertain terms, a dramatic, an unexpected, an abrupt change takes place at this point. Let's think about it with me. From the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has been walking around forgiving sins, astonishing crowds with his wise, profound teaching, calming storms, walking on water, turning water into wine, healing the sick left, right and centre, casting out demons, raising the dead, feeding thousands with just a few loaves and fish. He is briefly transfigured. He has boldly confronted the religious authorities. He's been compassionate. He's been authoritative. He's been fearless. 
But here in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's really very different. Here, we encounter a saviour that we are thus far unfamiliar with. Here we discover what it meant for Jesus to bear, to carry our sin. Here, his sinless humanity is revealed to us. Here, he contemplates, he considers, he wrestles with God's wrath for the sin of humanity, for our sin in some way coming onto him. Here he resolves to endure this wrath, to go through with the cross, to go through with it all, carrying the experience of human weakness. I want us to dig a bit deeper into this passage. I want us to try and see what this sinless human weakness actually involved for Jesus. Two things. First of all, it involved complete abandonment. From this moment in the garden, Right through his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, Jesus is abandoned. And we're confronted with it first here. Listen, in his greatest hour, in his greatest moment of crisis and need, he is completely and utterly alone. Over in Mark's account of these events, we see that Jesus had prophesied to his disciples. He says, you will all fall away. And what unfolds in these verses shows the painful accuracy of these words. First of all, having asked the disciples to pray with him, he finds them sleeping. And then on his arrest, as we'll see in the weeks to come, they all desert him. In fact, Peter even denies ever having known him. I want you to be aware, Jesus was forced to face this hour of greatest need alone. Now, just for a moment, if it's not too painful, why don't you try and remember a time when you felt alone in a time of crisis, trial, or suffering? In my experience, there are so very few. Or perhaps the, the strongest one in my mind was when I spent six months in India, uh, many years ago now, after I'd finished at university. I was hundreds and hundreds of miles away from home, uh, from all my family, all my friends. Uh, it was before the internet had been invented, so there's no email, uh, no Skyping people, no WhatsApp, or any of these other newfangled things that are around these days. Uh, so any contact came via letters, uh, which often got lost, uh, and at best took a couple of weeks to arrive. So any news you got from home was already at least two weeks out of date. To make matters worse, Um, I'd been incredibly unwell for three months, culminating in this particularly bad bout of sickness and diarrhea that left me feeling very, very dehydrated and faint. Now, in that condition, someone had the bright idea of forcing me to take a 45-minute journey as a passenger on the back of a motorbike. I hasten to add, it was at night, so it was dark. The lights on the bike weren't working. It was a particularly bumpy road and I wasn't wearing a crash helmet. I also remember sitting on the back of that bike passing in and out of consciousness not really caring if I lived or died. In fact in that moment death seemed a very attractive option until almost inevitably the bike collided with another vehicle 
And although miraculously I survived relatively unscathed and I able to stand here in front of you to tell the tale, somehow in that moment I managed to simultaneously vomit and release the contents of my bowels at the same time before then fainting into the mess that I'd created. Now, did I feel alone at that point? Absolutely yes, and for good reason. No one in their right mind would want to come anywhere close to me. Was I really alone? Probably not. I mean, I I was in a church full of people who cared a great deal for me. In fact, uh, after that incident I've just described, uh, a couple in the church took me into their home and were incredibly kind to me. All the time I had people who were looking out for me. Uh, Through that whole experience, I'd also have to say, uh, I found God in a ways that I hadn't at any point in my life up until then. Cut off from all other kinds of support that I'd grown up with, uh, I experienced something of uh, intimacy with God that uh, stood me in good stead, really, for the rest of my life. All the time. I'd have to say I wasn't really alone. Uh, At moments I might have felt it, but that wasn't true loneliness. I wonder whether you have ever really been alone. In the moment you might have felt alone, but I'm guessing that for most of us, regardless of how we have felt, we haven't fully been alone. Now let me make one thing very clear. Jesus was alone. Yeah, he had his disciples with him, but he didn't bring them along in order to supply him with some form of comfort or support. He wanted them to know that he was facing the greatest crisis of his life. He wanted them to see it, to witness it for themselves. If you like, he was preparing them for it. Even in that moment, he was caring for them. He was pastoring them through it. They weren't there for him. They fell asleep, they didn't watch, they didn't pray, they weren't prepared and ultimately they would desert him, forcing Jesus to face this greatest crisis absolutely alone. What did it mean for Jesus to bear our sin? Well, first of all, it meant complete abandonment. Second, it also involved deep distress. Again, over in Mark's account, we're told that the sorrow of Jesus' soul is so powerful and so intense, it brings him to the brink of death. As one translation puts it, he began to be gripped by a shuddering terror and to be in anguish. Such was the intensity of Jesus' anguish here that Luke tells us that he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. In the previous verse, Luke also tells us, if you remember, that Jesus was so distressed, an angel came to him to strengthen him. Let's face it, we cannot even begin to imagine what was going on in Jesus' mind at this point. But let's at least try. I mean, why was Jesus in such turmoil? Why this extreme distress of soul? Why? 
I mean, prior to this moment, there is no indication whatsoever of deep distress. There's no indication of shuddering terror or anguish. None. Now, why not? I mean, it's not as though his impending death was a surprise to Jesus. Now, he'd known that this was where it was all heading from the very beginning, from the outset, beginning in Luke chapter 3 with his baptism, then his time of temptation in the wilderness. Jesus had determined to bear his Father's judgment as our substitute for our sin. What's more, he had consistently and repeatedly spoken about it with his disciples. So it's not like he was avoiding the subject. He wasn't in some kind of denial. He wasn't trying to postpone the event, quite the opposite. We read in Luke 19 that Jesus led the way up to Jerusalem. Mark 10, 32 adds that they, Jesus and the disciples, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Why? The disciples astonished. Why were those who followed afraid? It's because it was strategic lunacy for them to go to Jerusalem at this point. You see, in Jerusalem lay the center of hostility against them. It's like striding right into the eye of a storm. Now, knowing this, does Jesus show any reluctance? Does he show show any sign of hesitancy? Now, Jesus was leading the way. He was striding on ahead of them. And then immediately, prior to his anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you remember, it was the Last Supper. Jesus gives thanks for the meal. And again, according to Mark's account of events, the supper concludes with he and the disciples singing a hymn together. There is no sign here of any distress. There is no hint of shuddering terror. But then immediately afterwards, suddenly... Without any warning, Jesus becomes so overcome with distress that he's on the brink of death. Now, why here? Why now? Well, for what it's worth, personally, I don't think he's contemplating the physical pain of death at this point. Admittedly, this in itself doesn't bear thinking about. A number of years back now, Mel Gibson's shocking portrayal of Jesus' death, it was filling cinemas right across the country. I tell you, the sheer barbarism of a Roman crucifixion as portrayed in that film, The Passion, is by far the most shocking, harrowing, emotionally grueling thing I have ever, ever seen. However, I really do not believe that this was uppermost in Jesus' mind as he pleaded with his father to spare him. I suggest he's anticipating being abandoned by his father. For him, having enjoyed complete relationship, intimacy with his father for all of eternity, separation from him was the ultimate agony. That's my guess. That's Jesus' praise in the Garden of Gethsemane. That is what he's facing up to. It's like Jesus becomes acutely aware, like never before, that he's facing far more than his own death. He's facing death as the substitute for sinners and sin. 
And that means separation from his father. As Luke puts it here in verse 42, he's contemplating the cup. The cup kind of is a picture. It represents his father's ultimate purpose for him. It's like he's staring into the cup. He's staring into the future, looking at the contents of what lies ahead. This is what he sees. He sees the sins of the world. But not only that, he sees God the Father's righteous and furious wrath against the sins of the world. That's what he contemplates. It's like Jesus in this moment is brought face to face with the immensity of bearing our sins. He's faced with the horrific reality of enduring his own father's wrath against the sins of the world. Now look, there are a lot of people, maybe even some of you in this room, who struggle with this whole idea. They say, well, if God's a God of love, there can't be any wrath. There can't be any judgment. There can't be any hell. If God's a God of judgment, if he's the kind of God who show wrath like this, he can't be a God of love. But I think what we're confronted with here is that God is a God both of love and of wrath and of judgment. Listen, if you airbrush out, if you get rid of the idea of God's wrath and his judgment against sin, you have a way less loving God. If you don't believe in his wrath and his judgment against sin, it trivializes what Jesus did on the cross. It's like without God's wrath, God's love is hollowed out of all meaning and all power. Won't you feel the weight that Jesus is bearing at this moment? He experiences a deep distress, anguish in his soul, a shuddering terror that almost renders him dead. He's in such sheer agony, it's as though he's sweating drops of blood. He kneels to the ground under the burden of our sin and his father's just wrath. And when he prays, this is what he says. He says, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet ultimately, I want your will to be done, not mine. Let's face it. We can't even begin to imagine the horror of what Jesus was experiencing here. I'm telling you, you'll never understand the cross without what happens here in the Garden of Gethsemane. These verses interpret, they help to explain all that follows. Here in Gethsemane, in his sinless humanity, Jesus momentarily appeals that if there is a way to avoid this horror, that his Father would provide an alternative. But his father says nothing. His passionate appeals are met with complete silence. 
do not doubt, if there was an alternative, if there was any other way, God the Father would have stepped in. He would have intervened at that moment and provided it. If there was any other way, God would have stepped in at that point. But he doesn't. It's like the silence in this passage is absolutely deafening. God's silent. He says nothing. He has no alternative. Why? Well, just listen to what, for many of us, would be a very familiar verse. Slightly reworked, helping us to feel its force as though for the very first time. God, the Father, so loved the world that he was silent when his sinless son pleaded for a way out. God the Father so loved sinners like you and me when his son pleaded for a way out he said nothing because there was no alternative. There was no other option Jesus was abandoned by his Father as the Father poured out his wrath and turned his face away from his own dearly beloved Son. Now, in preparation for this morning, I spent quite some time trying to find an illustration to try to help you out at this point. But I just haven't been able to come up with one. You see, there isn't one. The illustration just doesn't exist. Nothing in all of history or culture, sport, the arts, my own personal experience could ever come close to depicting what Jesus went through in the Garden of Gethsemane. In fact, if I were to stand here and try to present you with an illustration, it would be distinctly unhelpful. It could mislead you. It could cause you to think of Jesus' suffering in a way that you could fully understand or make sense of or in some way identify with. But ultimately, we cannot understand. No one has ever been there and done this. Only him. No human being has ever experienced the anguish, the agony, the shuddering terror that Jesus experienced at this time. It meant complete abandonment and distress of the soul, greater than anyone else in all of history has ever known and ever will know. That's what it meant for Jesus. So, before we finish, very, very quickly, I want to turn this around. Look at what this means for you and for me. What does this mean for us? Again, two things. First of all, in light of everything we've seen, won't you recognize his love for you in his darkest hour? Listen, we can't observe all of this without in some way being reminded of our sin. I mean, the horrific reality of the cross must bring me face to face with the appalling nature of my wrongdoing, how seriously God views it. Let's try to let it sink in. This is what my sin required. In the words of Martin Luther, each one of us who believes in Jesus 
must deeply believe and never doubt the least that you are the one who thus martyred Christ for your sins most surely did it. Elsewhere, he commented that we all walk around with his nails in our pockets. It's as though we contributed to him being nailed to the cross. I suggest it's impossible to to read a passage like this one in Luke without being hit by the sheer sinfulness of sin. This is how very serious your sin is. Unless Jesus went through with the cross, the problem of your sin, my sin, would have remained unresolved. I tell you, to look at the cross and end up just feeling momentarily, superficially, sentimentally moved by the physical sufferings of Jesus is to miss the point completely. It is an absolute tragedy when people merely kind of stand and admire Jesus for what he went through on the cross without at the same time facing up to the dreadful consequences of their own sin. Let's face it. For someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, for someone who hasn't accepted what he did on the cross for them, the cross should be absolutely terrifying Listen, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you haven't received the forgiveness that he offers through his death on the cross, you don't want to die and face up to a holy God having ignored what he did to his own son to provide the way for you to be forgiven. If sin is so serious that God the Father would willingly do that to his own son... What will he do to those who refuse his offer of forgiveness and choose to die in their own sin? Now please forgive me for speaking like this. But if you're here today and you don't believe in Jesus, you wouldn't say you're one of his followers, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. I believe it is God's grace to you that you're here today listening to this message. It might be painful, it might be difficult, you might be kicking against it inside, but it's like God is trying to make eye contact with you right now. I believe he'd want to say to you, won't you look at Jesus? Won't you realize something about him? God the Father would say, I allowed him to go through with the cross because I love you. In fact, I loved you so much that I didn't answer his prayer in the garden. It was my will for him to go through with the cross. That is how much I love you. And so I'd appeal to you this morning, won't you respond? Won't you trust in Jesus' finished work on the cross Won't you receive forgiveness for your sins? You see, if you don't, you'll meet the final, just, eternal, irreversible judgment of God. Please respond. Please receive the offer of forgiveness today.
And for those of us who have responded, those of us who have put our faith in Jesus' work on the cross, strangely, bizarrely, for whatever reason, I think a lot of us still feel like stuff in our life in some way disqualifies us. It's like we still think we have to try and be good enough to get closer to God as though it was all about us earning our salvation or at least paying Jesus back in some way. But look, in light of everything we've seen today, don't you see how foolish, how ridiculous, how meaningless it is for us to try to earn our salvation? Faced with the scale of the problem, there is absolutely nothing you can do. And the glorious flip side of that is there is absolutely nothing you need to do. It's like if you didn't earn your salvation in the first place, then how could you ever unearn it? My prayer for you would be that you would grasp how Jesus' work on the cross completely covers and erases and deals once and for all with all of your guilt and your sin and your shame. My prayer would be it would lift off you today. By summary then, you can't enter the Garden of Gethsemane and emerge the other side unaffected by your sin. And you can't witness Jesus' words, his prayers in this passage, without in some way being confronted by God's ferocious love for you. So first of all then, recognize his love for you in his darkest hour. And then secondly, won't you also receive his care for you in your darkest hour? Because let's be real, trials, suffering, tribulation, times of darkness, they will come our way whether we like it or not. However, surely this account of what Jesus went through in the Garden of Gethsemane, it provides us with huge comfort in our darkest hour. Now look, we'll never come anywhere close to what Jesus went through. Sometimes you, you hear people kind of glibly talking about their suffering as their Gethsemane. We do not have our Gethsemane. But his Gethsemane is our source of comfort that he sympathizes with us in our weakness, in our pain, in our struggles, and in our darkest hour. In the words of Hebrews chapter 4, So then, since we have a great high priest who entered heaven, who represents us before the Father, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours, Jesus, he understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did no sin. So, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, and there we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. I'm sorry that there isn't more time to bring application but in effect, isn't that all we need to know? 
And that will always be enough for us. Whatever we face, he is with us. We will never be alone. He understands. He knows. He sympathizes. He can empathize. So won't you receive his care for you, his love for you, his grace for you in your darkest hour?